Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, October 30th. It's the home stretch of the tennis season's two big events capturing fans' attention this week. On the ATP side, we've got the final Masters event of the year in Paris. Obviously, a lot of the top seeds in play there. No Roger Federer as he ended up pulling out of the event, but you have a Novak Djokovic in the event, Rafa Nadal there. And then a bunch of guys fighting for those final spots for the ATP World Tour Finals. But the WTA World Tour Finals already underway, and that is what I really want to talk about today. And with that topic in mind, there is no better person than I could think of to chat that specific tournament with than today's guest. You may recognize the work he has has done it for the tennis world as a journalist at the Ringer. More more recently, he is now a writer full-time at The Guardian. He wrote the definitive piece on the WTA World Tour Finals this week, Women's Tennis Takes Victory Lap in China Despite Troubling Backdrop, and that is why I am so happy to have on today's guest, Tumani Cariel. Uh, welcome to the Mini Break Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. So let me just say personally, we got the chance to meet in Cincinnati, but I would like to reiterate, I am such a fan of your work. So for me, it really is a pleasure to have you on today. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I warm you up with flattery so that you, uh, yeah. you know, when I ask a stupid question later, you won't take it too hard on me. Yeah, I, I won't. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> And I do want to say congratulations. I know you are now full-time at The Guardian. I, I want to ask, how's that been going? I know you've expanded the portfolio outside of tennis now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Like, ironically, I've, I was thinking, like, when when you we were talking about doing this, I've probably fo- followed tennis less over the past, you know, few weeks <laughs> than any point in the past, just because, as you said, I've been doing some football, soccer, I guess, and, you know, athletics and gymnastics. So I've been doing different stuff and trying different things, but tennis is always the number one, of course. And it's, it's been going well. I appreciate the translation of football to soccer for our American <laughs> listeners. Uh, I think they would have been able to get it because, you know, who in the tennis world isn't a fan of yours? I feel like if you are a listener to this podcast, you know, you're a must-follow on tennis Twitter. So I'm sure our fans have seen some of your Arsenal posts as well. They're like, huh? Like, <laughs> I don't know how this applies to tennis. But they, they figure, you know, they work their way through it anyways. But as I mentioned, the WTA, WTA Finals is underway. And you wrote a piece this week for The Guardian, as I mentioned. uh, titled Women's Tennis Takes Victory Lap in China Despite Troubling Backdrop. The headline, Might the WTA Final Setting Cast a Pale Over the Profound Symbolism of the Most Lucrative Event in the Sports History. Um, You know, listeners, I promise when we tweet out the link to this episode, we'll tweet out the link to that article as well. But I want to start there. Uh, You know, you were set, as you approached the WTA Finals and how you were going to cover event, why was this the storyline that popped out to you? Um, well, I think in general, kind of the WTA's arrival and increasing 
presence in China was has always been quite an interesting subject to me. And after seeing kind of the images a couple of months ago of the you know the tanks and the people, you know the armored whatever the military vehicles in the place where the players were going to be playing, I thought that was an obvious angle into it. And you know at the moment, kind of one of the big the discourse in sports is about whether or not it's related to politics and you know many people constantly arguing that you know it should be apart and separate from politics and kind of the realities of life but you know for me it's very clear that the sports kind of intersects with everything and this was a very kind of clear example of that happening where the two things were literally in in the same space and you know I think you know, I wanted, with the piece I wrote, I wanted to kind of show kind of the history of the WTA and the fact that obviously in terms of like equal prize money and female athletes being able to earn it as, you know, the money that male athletes do, obviously kind of money is, is symbolic. But at the same time, you know, it's not like inherently empowering, you know, it's, it's when when you kind of have the context of, you know, what's going in Hong Kong right now or you know, in China, Muslims being, you know, taken to camp, to re-education camps, you know, it matters kind of the context and, you know, where these governing bodies, sports choose to earn their money. And we have to be honest and upfront about that. One of the things casual tennis fans get so frustrated, I th- or at least in my opinion, where I get so frustrated when politics and tennis intersect is there's so often a lack of nuance in the coverage of that intersection. And what makes you such a great writer, if you allowed me to indulge you with another compliment, is you provide that context so brilliantly. One of the themes of your article uh, in making the connection of tennis to what's going on with the WTA's growth in China and with the WTA in particular is you describe it as, you know, sort of counterintuitive to the WTA's founding principles. And again, I, I try not to give away the entire article, but that's kind of where I want to start. Um, why, you know, you, you set the scene so well in your narrative, but to our listeners, can you sort of explain the founding principles of the WTA and why you see, you know, how that could be uh, different to, or why it would be counterintuitive to what's going on in China right now? Sure. Um, so obviously the WTA was, you know, the WTA and the Virginia Stem Circuit, which was what came before the WTA was founded at a time when tennis was kind of booming, but the women weren't getting access to kind of at least what they felt was fair prize money, not even equal or anything close to that, but just a fair, you know, living for their presence in tennis to be worthwhile. So they they you know, formed their own tour and were able to kind of build from that and from kind of, you know, as as I mentioned in the article from them, that kind of iconic photo of the original nine, uh, you know, led by Billie Jean King uh, holding $1 bills for for the contract they signed initially. Um, it's grown into becoming um, the biggest sport, female sport, women's sport in the world. And obviously, a sport that's kind of comes out of a history of kind of of protests of being inspired by kind of the the late sixties, early seventies in, in the States and around the world where which was a time of protests and of, you know, fighting for equality. You know, I, I do think that 
I don't know, that just needs to be, you know, that always should be part of the sport and I guess how the sport is viewed and shouldn't kind of ever lose sight of that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And part of the joy of the article is you do trace that narrative so well now in terms of the WTA's intersection with China for listeners who don't know. And these are all stats I found through some of your pieces, so I'm going to continue to plug them. Listeners, you have to go read him if you are not already, but you talk about how there are now nine tournaments in China. There are only eight in the United States. The WTA has an office in Beijing. You look at uh, the total prize money for this event. It's a $14 million total pot for the finals that you know is more than $5 million than what the ATP finals in London uh, the recipients are going to get if you go undefeated, which I don't think is going to happen here, but you would pocket at 4.725 million. That's more than the 3.8 the U.S. Open champions got. Uh, you look in, you know, with a revenue opportunity like that, and then another number, sorry to throw so many at you in one moment, but uh, from another article you brought up how you look at how the revenue for the ATP has grown larger and more quickly than it has for the WTA. You know, the ATP in 2008 brought in $61.3 million, the WTA 58.7. In 2017, that gap rose. The ATP brought in $147 million, the WTA brought in $104 million. There is clearly an opportunity for growth in the Chinese market. And the WTA, you know, again, in your article, you trace it back to Lina winning her first Grand Slam. That was a moment. That's when this intersection sort of started. So can you talk about the importance of China for the WTA and tennis moving forward to, again, explain to our listeners why, who may not understand why that relationship is so important? I mean, yeah, you 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 explained it well. Um, obviously, it kind of stems okay. from. <laughs> I don't need that that much, but it does stem from the rise of Linar and you know the 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 two Grand Slams she won, the impact she had, both kind of you know as the first Asian Grand Slam champion and all that she did, and you know we saw from the year that she retired in 2014 that that was the first year of the Wuhan Open which is a tournament uh, built specifically in her hometown. And, and yeah, and of course, it's very natural and understandable and normal and that the WTA would kind of follow that lead and, and expand there. And it's clear that, you know, the, the, on the other hand, you know, these, these cities, will, you know, it feels like being following tennis sometimes is at this moment, it's just, you know, like a Chinese geography lesson. I now know Zhuhai and Wuhan, you know, and um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, that's kind of a benefit from both sides. And it's clearly that as China, given the finances that China has, there's a lot of opportunity there and, that's what they're seizing and you know again like part of the the piece I wrote was to kind of show kind of that in there's a reason why this is happening and it's not just you know it's it's I guess I just to show the whole picture and you know the main thing is that we have to be kind of honest and upfront about why this is happening and and then people can make up their own minds. 
to be clear, you com- you complimented my summary. It was just me quoting your work, so it was really just a compliment to <laughs> uh, you. Let's be clear. An- another um, compliment, Alex. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> a subtle one though at that. So I thought I could sneak it by you. Um, but you know, to play devil's advocate now, you know, you and many and. You know, I would also argue that all sports organizations are inherently political organizations as well, but that's an argument that is under scrutiny. A lot of people disagree with that. And so, you know, sports industry insiders would argue, no, they're not political organizations. They're in the business of making money. They're for-profit organizations. I already mentioned the income disparity figures between the ATP and WTA as of 2017, but, you know, you reported that the Shenzhen deal for the WTA finals is somewhere in the 10-year $1 billion range. And again, that's billion with a B. So if the WTA is a for-profit organization, if the idea that, you know, not only are they in the business of making money, but by making more money, you attract more players. You make the sport, which according to you, again, Forbes top 11 highest grossing female athletes are all tennis players. So there's already incentive to play the sport as a female athlete, but continuing to grow it in China and just throughout the world, that's inherently more beneficial to the WTA. What would you say to that argument? Um, I guess the first is that you should be upfront about that and you know and okay. the the because you know as as I, I quoted in the article one of the the main statements from steve simon wta ceo was that you know he, he framed it as that the money that they had earned that um Shenzhen were offering was empowering and that you know they were the people he said they walked the walk instead of just talking it and yeah, um, you can say that, but again, we should kind of just be clear about the fact that the WTA, if the WTA is for profit and if that's what's driving them, then that should be <laughs> clear, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, and there is something to the transparency, and I think you did, you, you, as you mentioned, you did have a quote from the WTA CEO talking about that. And you know, we're, we don't have to get into Chinese politics over the past, you know, 20 years and what is right and wrong about that government. But it feels like this sort of clash was inevitable, right? And you talked about it being everything, all the tensions being highlighted by that Daryl Morey incident in the NBA and how there's a trickle-down effect to other sports as well. And you look at the WTA, which is all in in China as well. Um, but then you counter that with the Lina narrative. And so I guess my question to you as well is, because China's not the only suspect government that there's tennis matches involved with. It, you can think however you want about many different governments in the world, but whether it's Turkey and what's going on with the Kurds, you remember last year the Djokovic-Federer exhibition getting canceled yep. in Saudi Arabia in the wake of Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi being murdered. That was another political incident as well. So, you know, this is happening in multiple countries. It's not just China. And I guess my question is, do you feel this sort of clash between uh, the money and uh, the politics of the regions where Tennyson was getting involved was inevitable? Because, I, I, you know, there's a side that says, you know, it, it, it maybe it's not. And, I, you know, again, this is why I enjoy you as a reporter, because you are pursuing a story like this. Did you see this clash as inevitable? Yeah, um, especially with tennis, I think, because it's it's kind of susceptible. I don't know. It's a sport that's 
very easy for governments around the world to kind of use to showcase their countries. You know, one of thinking actually back to, as, as I said earlier, I was covering athletics and that was, there was a big issue with um, the athletics being in Doha um, this year and kind of the corruption with all of that. Um, and tennis was actually one of kind of the first sports in kind of the Europe to kind of showcase the United Arab Emirates and Dubai. And it's, I don't know, it's a sport that as we see kind of the, the world becoming flatter with the internet, with more countries having money to spend on these things, of, of course, there are, I think there are going to be more clashes and, and yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Look, you are doing this live in London. That speaks to the growth of that we've had, that I'm on the East Coast, you're in London, and another thank you to you. I know how late it is over there. Um, but yeah, and it's not just the ATP WTA level, right? How many futures events are scattered across the world each and every week? It's These players are taking opportunities wherever they can get them because that's how you have to make a living in tennis. And so, you know, there's the separate argument that, that the WTA CEO says, which again is... There, it, it seems disingenuous is the word we'll go with to say they're putting up. How can you say when, as you reference in this story, in August, the same site that's being used for this WTA finals was used for a police activity, you know, a, a show of force to the protesters in Hong Kong and say the Chinese government is walking the walk by offering $14 million in prize money to these players. But again, the money implications, $14 million. There is the fact that this is what the WTA was hoping for, is to put this at a point where their athletes are grossing more in an equal level event than the men. That speaks to the health of the sport. Um, I guess your, your argument is transparency. If the WTA was transparent about that point, being it's strictly about the money, and that would come with criticism, but maybe would you respect that argument more? Yes, um yeah okay. a bit more um but yeah i just in general i just think there's there is a cost with taking that money and uh, all, all the issues that surround it and i think we, we should be honest about that yeah i i completely agree with you i think that's the biggest thing and that's why your piece brings the that relationship that into highlight which is something we should talk about introducing coco golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power on the court the multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Now, I know in the piece you quote the WTA CEO, but I'm curious on the ground and I've seen you in those interview rooms. I know you you'll get your questions and, you know, there's no doubt about that, but have you had the chance to speak with any players about these issues? There are some players who are obviously more candid about things like this than not, and I won't ask you to divulge any names, but have you started to feel around and poke if if, if this is an issue amongst them? them as well uh not not so much I, I would i don't think it is uh, you know i think most of the players are there to play and i wouldn't think that it lists kind of high in 
in in how they see this store you know that at the end of the day they they are kind of independent contractors and you know as as we saw with uh, the nba players kind of their their role is they are athletes first and foremost and I don't know. I, I wouldn't expect them to feel strongly about it. Yeah, it would be a big moment, right? If like when Billie Jean King and the her group um, decided to walk away from the start their own league and do what they wanted to do. Uh, I was trying. Um, that would be something. If someone decided not to play the World Tour Finals, they weren't comfortable. That would be a tremendous moment in, you know, tennis history. That would be something that would absolutely change the lexicon, right? The, the way that people are talking about this issue is if it would take a player activism probably to make this sort of thing more relevant because let's be honest, the crowds at the finals this year, they haven't been tremendous. No, no. But yeah, as, but as, I think that, you know, in in the case you mentioned with, with kind of Billie Jean King, you know, those players kind of had, I guess, less to lose now with the money, you know, with the points on offer, who's got, you know, who is really, you know, realistically, no one, no one is going to, you know, refuse to play or to say that they're uncomfortable with playing or anything like that. Yeah, that would be a big moment. Again, the exhibition between uh, Djokovic and I think Federer uh, was, or maybe Nadal, I, I forget. Nadal, it was, yeah. Yeah, between him and Nadal was close to happening. It probably would have happened had that uh, murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi not occurred. So it would take, you know, it, it it would take some sort of significant moment. It would take some sort of player activism, in my opinion, as well, for anything probably to change. But that's why we appreciate journalists like you raising the question, because otherwise it probably would not be raised. But with that in mind, again, go check out the piece, the title, Women's Tennis Takes Victory Lap in China Despite Troubling Backdrop. You can find that at theguardian.com or on Tumani's uh, Twitter feed, which again, one of the best in tennis Twitter. If you're not following it, you should be already. But if you'll entertain me, I do want to talk a little bit of tennis because there's obviously a fascinating World Tour Finals going on. Naomi Osaka pulling out of the tournament with a shoulder injury is a storyline within itself, but there's a lot of little tennis things I want to talk about since I know you're covering the event. Um, I want to start, you know, you could divide this World Tour field into two separate groups, right? There's the young got, uh, the young Bucks at the beginning. There was Osaka, Bencic, Andrescu, and Barty. And then there were the veteran, veterans, uh, Pliskova, uh, Kvitova, Merten, uh, Mertens, uh, Halep, and um, I'm blanking out on the Kvitova. The point is, it, it was very... It, it speaks to the age divide going on right now, right? There's sort of a shifting in the guards. And so I'm curious for you, as you've been following this event, what uh, storylines from the tennis have stood out from uh, for you? Um, in, in, in terms of the generation clash, uh, I, I, yeah, very, I, I really enjoyed um, Andreas Gu versus Halep yes, yes, well, on Monday um, because, you know, that was a big clash and, I'm not sure if if you've seen, but both of them have talked a lot about the um, two uh, three years ago in 2016 when they were speaking with each other at uh, I guess a kids' day in, at the Rogers Cup, and Andreescu spoke to Halep. Obviously, Halep's Romanian, Andreescu's parents are Romanian, and she spent some of her childhood there. And Halep advised her to that she was already good enough at 16, I guess, and she should 
go straight onto the tour and you know get there as quickly as possible she did and obviously the rest is history and so after kind of that initial contact they finally faced each other and it was a it was a really good match you know Andrescu showed kind of what she can do in the first set and a bit you know you know the, the, that she has so much in her game her movement her return her huge strokes her variety and kind of blew Halep off the court but then you saw Halep kind of step stamp her foot and show kind of what why she has achieved what she has achieved with her consistency her you know her ability to just grind you down and to turn defense into attack and all of that stuff she saved a match point and yeah it, it, by the end kind of Andrescu was feeling it physically and you know I, I don't think I'm old but it's I I'm <laughs> as I get older I feel like <laughs> appreciating you know in, when I was younger when I was just like fan watching I'd always love to see a, a young player just come out and destroy the top player but now I appreciate seeing even though Halep isn't old either just seeing a older player just hold off one of the younger players just one more time you know I'm, I'm sure that there will come a time when Andreescu beats Halep and probably will beat her multiple times but just to see kind of the veteran the player who's been around and knows what to do out there just you know, show what she's made of. That was that was cool to see. I think Simona Halep, a three six seven six six three winner in that match over Andrescu. And you're absolutely right. It, you know, the one concern about Andrescu, not that on a match by match individual basis, she's not fit enough to compete at the highest level, but it's how is she going to hold up over an extended period of time? Injuries has been have been just as much a narrative of the early part of her career as has been her success as of more recently. Um, but in this match, you, you were reminded, you know, Bianca Andrescu's not. 20 years old, Simona Halep is in her physical prime, and that is how she grinded out that match. On that match point, you know, there was a backhand stretch that she got to slice that, you know, yep. barely dropped in by the alley, and that's what sort of reset the point on that match point, and then eventually her physicality wore out in that third set. She just kept making extra balls until Andrescu cracked. Um, but of course, you're right. Like Andrescu's variety, just all of the different things she can do, whether it's elevated pace with lots of spin, or sorry, elevated uh, with lots of spin, just kind of neutralizing the point, whether it's drop shots, whether it's taking balls early, she can do it all. And it's funny because the player I forgot to mention, of course, slides right between these players in terms of generations, and that's Alina Svitolina, who's not old by any account, but probably is in between the two groups in terms of how I was distinguishing them. Um, you know, you throw her now into the mix as well. She gets a 7-6-6-4 win over Pliskova. Uh, she's going to match up now with Halep, to, uh, I guess, tomorrow morning, or by the time you guys are listening to this, that match will probably have already taken place. Um, but yeah, it it's just interesting because, as you mentioned, it is nice to see these top players, uh, or these top players, these old, this older generation hold on to it for a little bit longer. But I mean, in terms of the gap between them, I feel like going into 2020, right, it's anyone's ballgame. All of these young players are ready to win at any level. Even look at Belinda Bencic today, the way she fought off Petra Kvitova. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um it's that, you know, as, as you said, especially with Osaka, Bencic, Andreescu, uh, it, it seems like they're all feeding off each other. And, you know, kind of one of the, a, me- well, a memorable moment for me was actually in, in the Rogers Cup um, when 
uh, Andrescu and Osaka were sitting next to each other during the draw ceremony, and Andrescu mentioned that Osaka was inspired her, you know, was one of the, re- you know, she saw Osaka win her two slams, and she thought, I can do that, and you get that a lot, you know, with players kind of seeing other people achieve something, and then understanding that, you know, or well, feeling that they're good enough to do so, and it seems like they're all kind of, you know, in, inspiring each other in some way, and that they're, they're obviously, there's plenty more to come from all of them, so... Next year will definitely be interesting, and and this tournament to see how it plays out in the end. I mean, we saw the way tennis Twitter loved when Naomi Osaka said, "Well, Ostapenko actually did it first, and it even <laughs> starts then, right?" Which was yeah, that yeah. was the first, and that set off the chain of events. But you know, for me, I guess there's two ways I want to talk about this in terms of that young crop is, and and I do, you know, that you're right. There is still a fascinating tournament in front of us. But Belinda Bencic, you know, she's a little bit older than everyone, but Barty, but she was the first prodigy of the group, right? She was the world number one junior. She was the one who was breaking through when she was 16 and then she yep. got injured and that you know you can't deny that that undoubtedly affected the course of her career co- uh, trajectory but now you look at the way she's come on of late she had the pressure of I need to win the Kremlin Cup to qualify for the World Tour Finals well she went and did that now she comes here you know in her first match she loses a tough three-setter to Barty but then she bounces back gets a three-set win over Kvitova uh, she now will play Kiki Burton's and I believe it was you who said this on the Guardian like live feed or maybe it was the article after that was you know it's hilarious that Burton's and Benchich were trying to fight for that last uh, World Tour final spot and now they're playing for a spot in the semis of that's just how the tennis gods work but I mean for bench it she showed this year (laughs) yeah yeah look I'm just trying to show off what you (laughs) must realize by now is my ego is through the roof this is all just (laughs) humble brags for me um but for uh Belinda Benchich whether it was her stretch of she won Dubai and the players she beat there, then she made the Indian Wells finals, she made the U.S. Open semifinal. On a hard court for sure this year, she showed she's going to be, you know, if she maintains this form, one of the five toughest players to beat on that surface. And I just think because she's the one in the group without a slam, but she was the one with the highest expectations, I just don't, you know, with a result like this, let's say she makes the semifinals, let's say she even goes on to the finals or wins this event, with the confidence she's built this season, I just feel like she's one to circle who, like, I, she is going to be so hungry for a slam in 2020. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned kind of her being the first, and I mean, I, I think first of all, what kind of the injuries and all of that has shown is just how tough this tour is and how, you know, it's not easy for young players to play um, day in, day out, and achieve great things but she's obviously as, as you see frequently in tennis you know with injuries and stuff she's learned and she's grown up and you see kind of I mean she still has some many actually moments where you know she'll kind of look close to tears and she'll call her father on and she and be upset but she's shown like a, you know with these a lot of these wins as well there's been so many three setters so many kind of saving match points or you know, seven fives in the third, seven six in the third, and you know she's building a toughness that is gonna help her in in the coming slams and in in the coming tournaments. And you know, yeah, as you said, you know, certainly on a hard court, you know, she's she's at home. 
you know, stepping into the baseline and taking the ball early and kind of, you know, showing that, you know, even though she's not the hardest hitter or the biggest player, she still has her weapons and she can still impose her game on pretty much anyone at this point. To me, it's almost little. She's she's the Andy Murray of the group right now. You've got Barty, Osaka, and Rescue all getting their major titles early on. She hasn't gotten one yet, but to me, you know, sometimes people don't include Murray in that group with the other three players. I'm not going to say the other big three players because it is a big four in my mind. Um, but for Belinda Bencic, would you include her in that group of Barty, Osaka, and and Rescue after what you saw this year, or would you put her a little bit lower than that? Oh, no, I, I mean, in terms of achievements, of course, she hasn't achieved what they have yet. But I think, I mean, I, I always saw that, particularly, you know, initially the 1997 generation with kind of Ostapenko and Osaka, they're all contemporaries. And I think they're all kind of, you know, as I said, inspire each other. And you've seen particularly with, um, when Benchich has faced Osaka, there's obviously... She knows that, you know, she wanted that to be her. She wanted to be the one getting to number one and winning a slam. Even though she doesn't say, you know, it's it's natural that, you know, there's an extra edge when they face each other and she's brought her best game every time she's faced Osaka so far. And yeah, yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, she she doesn't quite have, say, let's say the weaponry or, or you know, the huge game of Andreescu or Osaka, but... I mean, I think she's capable of winning slams for sure and of get, certainly getting deep into them. And I think the US Open was really the start. So it's going to be, I mean, it will be interesting to see if she can make that final step next season and maybe this year the finals. Yeah, that's why, again, to see how she does down the home stretch here, qualify for the semifinal again with a match on the line, another second winner go home sort of incident. And you've done it twice now at the end, make the finals. You've done it three times. That's just a strong ending to any one season. I want to switch gear from the WTA finals real quick back to the Elite Trophy again in Zhuhai because another player who age-wise fits into the Barty through, uh, I guess we'll go all the way down to Andrescu timeline, and that's Arnia Sabalenka who, of course, won the Elite Trophy event. She won the Wuhan Open as well uh, to really round out what was an up-and-down season from start to finish, but she'll enter year around 11-12, so on the precipice of the top 10. And she's shown she's a dangerous player when she brings her A game. I'm curious, I know you covered the event. Where are you right now on her game heading into 2020? I didn't actually cover the event, but um, I... Oh. Yeah, that, I must admit, See, I, I didn't not as good as not as good at my homework <laughs> as you thought. Yeah, I didn't I, actually. I didn't really didn't watch much of it, but I think, I mean, it's it's been a very strange a kind of end of the year for Sabalenka. And obviously, at the U.S. Open, she had, I think at the U.S. Open, yeah, at the U.S. Open, she had the whole thing with her coach Dmitry Dasnov, where they seemed to split, and then she posted a very dramatic note. On, on Instagram about their relate about the their kind of partnership, and then he was kind of there during the doubles final, and then <laughs> he's back on. It's and but she's had a great end to the year, and she won Wuhan, won the Elite Trophy. I guess I mean, she, I guess the question is because she she had a great end to last year, so. You know she's been here before. We'll see if she's learned from 
everything that's happened this year and you'd expect her to she and she is you know she has a huge game huge serve huge ground strokes it's you know big really strong athlete so i mean she certainly has weapons in her game and it's how we'll see how she controls them and if she can finally you know bring it at a top big event at a slam and yeah all right, an- another player I want to talk about at the WTA Finals, and then, you know, I know it's late for you, so I promise we'll wrap up. But uh, for, uh, you know, a tweet of yours today that caught my interest because I caught the highlights of Kvitova Bencic earlier today uh, before this night. You know, you tweeted, remember when Petra Kvitova indoors used to be one of the <laughs> most impressive sights? It really isn't enjoyable watching her trying to grind through these slow courts. Even in that set, she won 6-1. She hit four, parentheses, four. Again, that's a translation for us Americans, winners. <laughs> Um, you know, it's always worse to hear your tweets read out loud. And there's obviously something to the fact that Petra Kvitova, who started out the year with an Australian Open final, she's been fighting health all year long when she was in that press room in Cincy, and I got the chance to hear from her directly. You know, she talked about how big of a struggle that has been. But, I mean, I would say Pliskova, Halep, uh, Svitolina, of the, of the older players in this event, they certainly have, you know, prime years of tennis ahead of them in my opinion your point I think raises something about Petra Kvitova and where she's at in her career you know injuries have really gotten to her and yet she still finished the year in the top eight what do you you know what are your feelings about the state of her game right now what do you expect to see from her heading into 2020 yeah it's 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 been a I mean the funny thing is that it's her year started off extremely well you know she made the Australian Open final she won kind of a, a ton of a few titles and many last year as well she's you know co- coming into the clay season you know everything seemed to be going great and that was despite you know she had her she had to go to court for her to put her attacker away in prison um uh and yeah I think there are, there are many positives you know she's a lot fitter now she's a lot more patient with her game she kind of, you know, she's not nearly as streaky. And for me, her is- most of her issues have stemmed from just injuries this year. Um, and, you know, she lost rhythm and it's just been tough to get her back. I think I'd hope and expect that, you know, eventually she'll get back on track and she seems to have a lot, play with a lot more experience now and she's not as streaky as before. So I think my expectations are still very high for her. Um, and in regards to the match today, I think you know less about Petra and more about the court speed and how slow those indoor courts, both in Shenzhen and also in Singapore, the previous years are. And it, yeah, it, uh, from, for me, I've, I've always felt that, you know, we've, we talk about court speed a lot. And in regards to kind of ATP, I can understand, even though I enjoy kind of faster tennis, I can understand why it's in a discussion, why it's an argument, why, you know, in a tall weather, six foot ten guys or whatever, huge serves and taking, you know, huge strikes of the ball. It's, you know, that's the re- that's clearly the reason why surfaces have slowed down, why people, well, in tennis want more rallies. Whereas in women's tennis, I think that the product is always helped by faster courts, you know, even kind of the counter punches, they get, they gain from faster courts. It forces them to be more aggressive. It, it gives their ball more kind of pace and more 
you know, wait. And it's frustrating to watch like the, the Kvitova Bencic match and just to see uh, Kvitova, an aggressive player, just struggle to hit through <laughs> the court like that because that's not how it should be indoors, I think. Oh, I I agree with you completely. And the hardest part about that match was because the court is slowed down, with all due respect, to watch Petra Kvitova move, she's clearly not at her healthiest. And you could just tell. like It was a stretch for her getting to those outer thirds on all of these points. Bencic had her most success taking balls early down the line, getting her stretched. And you know that regardless of the surface speed, that's always going to be the way to beat Petra Kvitova. But it felt particularly effective today. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really fun WTA Finals event, and you know, with that in mind, we can wrap up our coverage there. And I know, again, it's getting late for you, but give me your prediction. Who is emerging as the WTA Finals champion? I know Barty's already locked up world number one. Oh my god, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no clue. I, I actually, I liked what I was seeing from Osaka just in general, but that's not happening. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'll give you my pick first. How about this? Please I'm do. making the case, and this is obviously why I brought her up. You know, my, I wear my biases on my sleeve. Uh, but I think Belinda Bencic is going to take it. I really do. I think she's playing really sound tennis. I think the Barty Kvitova match, well, I think Barty, Barty's probably going to win that one. And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure how the set format works. I think if Bencic wins, she's in, right? Just directly? Um, yeah. I think yeah. yes, I think so. That that yeah, Bencic versus yeah. yeah. I think the winner of that match, Bencic versus Burton's, will probably think. Oh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really good to make predictions when it's hard to even know who's going to make the semifinals. <laughs> that makes it really easy. But yeah. I just I've really enjoyed the way she's playing. I think these courts are going to play well for her. I think Andrescu, with all due respect, looks really physically spent. Simona yeah. Halep looks gassed as well. I just think. Bencic looks the freshest of the players with the best opportunity to make that final, you know, semifinal final action. So I'm going to stick with her. But to be honest, I'm happy no matter who wins it. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice sentiment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I got no stakes. Actually thinking about it, as, as you said, you know, I could actually do it. This feels like, and, and I, I kind of agree, and I like your Bencic prediction, but this feels like a, another event for Svitlina to just kind of hoover up everyone, vacuum up everyone, mm-hmm. you know, you know, against the Andreas who's under, who's not as fit against the Halep who may still feel, you know, that last match in her legs and against the benches who may not have kind of the experience to see a, such a big match through if they face each other in the semis or final, you know, yeah, I could say sure. this feels like a Svitlina tournament. For Svitolina to win that first set tiebreaker, I think it was like something in the realm of 14-12 against Pliskova in the first set, uh, and then get a straight set win, given what we've seen from all of these other matches. That's going to be so valuable to her by the end of the week. I, I completely agree with you there. And she's the defending champion, so there's a lot on the line for her. It would make sense for her to come out strong. Um, I would entertain some ATP Paris Masters. Any, you know, I'll, you get t- two seconds, and then I promise I'll let you... Well, I want to do quick <laughs> rapid fire, but and then I swear I'll let you go. But any thoughts on the ATP Paris Masters event going on? Who do you expect to end up qualifying for the World Tour Finals? Uh, I guess Zverev Berrettini. Not very interesting, but <laughs> seems like the likeliest. Um, I mean, Zvera played great today. Yeah, I, I didn't see it, but he—I mean, I expect that his 
you know, with all his issues, off-court issues, seemingly, you know, no longer bothering him. You know, I, I think he'll, even though he lost early in bar, I, I expect him to kind of, to continue improving and get back to a certain level. Um, I guess the kind of the biggest things to talk about are the Russians today. Um, Kachanov, defending champion, who lost in the first round. Um, and to Shadi, I believe. Um, no, no, that was not right. Um, I, I think Hatchinov lost to Struf, correct? Yes, that's right. Hatchinov lost yeah. to Struf, Medvedev lost to Shadi. Um, Wait, Medvedev lost? <laughs> <laughs> but I did that, yeah. No, <laughs> definitely definitely leave this in. I had no, wait, I had looked. I knew he played the late match. Hold on. Yeah, he, give me a second. it was very recent. He lost 4-6-6-2-6-4. Yeah, this is live. Oh, my God. Wait. <laughs> Unbelievable. A Titan goes down. Wow. Rough day for the Russians. Rough, yes. rough day. And then with Rublev losing yesterday to Sanga as well. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yes. And, wow. yeah, for, for different, obviously, Kachanov, defending champion, it's been a tough season for him, and he's looked very frustrated in the bits I've seen of, like particularly this ball. Um, he's looked very frustrated on the court. I think, yeah, when he lost to Seppi, God, he, that was dire. And yeah, just you know, obviously he played so well to win Paris last year, but you know, it, it showed kind of that his game is, I want to, quite one-dimensional. No, he, he huge serve, huge. You know, off the ground he can be hit huge, but you know his forehand can be erratic. He doesn't really have much variety in his game, and that this kind of it seems like it's come back to bite him this year. I'm sure he'll have more big results, but needs to be more more to his game. Would I you agree? I, I are you just going shock here? <laughs> yeah, I'm like looking at these stats and like someone beat Daniel Medvedev indoors on a hardcore. It was Jeremy Chardy of all people. <laughs> I was like, that blows my mind. No disrespect. Check, check the break point stats. Yeah, one of the highlights of my young tennis journalist career is drinking wine with uh, Jeremy Chardy in the mountains of Vermont at an event. But I'll save that for another time. But. Oh, my God. But, yes, no, I, I completely agree for Hachinov in particular. And with, uh, you know, as a Midwest American, I've been told I have a harsh Michigan accent. You can confirm or deny, but I just I wouldn't know it. what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I own it with my Kachinov. I'm just going to emphasize it. I'll do my McEnroe <laughs> impression. Um, yeah, it's just – it's so shocking to see last year his physicality stood out, right? That was the thing that separated him was uh, he just – for six six or six five, whatever he is, to move the way he does yeah, yeah. to with that serve with all of these different things, he he had so many things going for him, so many different weapons, so many different ways for him to move. Now he's not a comfortable volleyer, but moving forward was clearly something he had been working on throughout the year. And then he came out at the beginning of the season in a match that sticks out in my mind in that Indian Wells tournament. He had Rafa Nadal on the brink, and that was the match. You know, I thought last year Rafa. Uh, was broken by Dominic Team and Kachanov at the U.S. Open. Maybe it was two years ago. I don't remember. I think it was last year, no, uh, when he ended up losing. Yeah, it was last year, uh, or I guess 2018, um, because he played them in back-to-back rounds, and those matches were so physical that Rafa just had nothing left in the tank for Del Potro. Uh, and then Kachanov did the exact same thing to Nadal at Indian Wells. He had him cramping. Nadal couldn't move. 
And Hatchinoff couldn't finish the match. It ended up going three, and with a guy who's cramping, his knees are hurting, and Hatchinoff lost that match. From that moment on, I was concerned and just... There's been no rhythm to him to his season this year. I know, you know, I think he had his first kid this season, which Mazel yes. talked to him and his family, of course. But on the tennis court, it just it was very it was so stagnant. There was nothing for him that improved this season, and that's an issue. Yes, no, I, I fully agree. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, the Russians' big day, Medvedev. Oi, you, you hope you put him in like, I don't know if you were a Dragon Ball Z fan, but like the hyperbolic yes. chamber and you're like, just reload. You have, yeah. you have, you know, a week until it's ATP World Tour time. Just relax. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the big story. One other last narrative from it was Kyle Edmund gets a win. Does this give Great Britain a better or worse chance at winning at the Davis Cup if it's him versus Cam Norrie? Uh, I mean, uh, come on, Ed- Edmund. Ed- <laughs> <laughs> With all due respect, Edmund is... Obviously, the, the better player. I mean, I don't know if one win changes his season and makes him a threat against everyone. So, I mean, at, at, at this point, clearly, Dan Evans is the second player. Um, and he'll probably be the second player for Britain. I don't know. It, I think it it was even, you know, his, Edmund is facing Schwarzman in the second round. And wouldn't kind of expect, given how well Schwarzman played last week in Vienna, wouldn't expect Edmund to win that, to be honest. Maybe I'm just not a, a overly positive Brit, but no, it's, I, I guess it's good. It's, it's good that he, he gets a win and we'll go into the season without a nine-match losing streak. You know, seems like anything <laughs> is better than that. So, yeah, yeah and, he, and, he's, and Edmund's um, rumoured to be um, joining up with um, Franco Davin, which would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. I... I always like to see British players connect with foreign coaches, honestly, (laughs) because that (laughs) doesn't happen a lot. And I think there's a lot that sometimes is missed by only or generally only being with a coach from your country. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Plus, according to your reporting, Judy Murray doesn't have any more time available, right? She's all booked up. She's uh, she's everywhere, it seems, yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So there are not many options available. Well, we will spare—I'm going to spare you the rapid fire as an incentive to bring you on again because, again, your work at The Guardian, at The Ringer over the years, some of my favorite in the tennis journalism world. And for our listeners who are, you know, intrigued by your piece and want to hear more of your work, can you let them know where, where, you know, where to find you, what you'll be up to over these next couple of months uh so find me on twitter tom cario uh, uh well i'm sure that'll be a <laughs> my name will be in the episode um but <laughs> yeah it's it's hard to spell my name um yeah I, i'll just be writing i guess about tennis i'll, I'll be at the obviously I, i'm from london i'll be in the world of finals be at davis cup and other than that, I'll just be writing and talking nonsense on Twitter. So, <laughs> the, the usual, you know. <laughs> hey, look, I had a whole segment of Arsenal questions lined up for you, but then I realized how out of my league I'd be. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, my extent is FIFA. I was like, remember when it was Alexis Sanchez? I really liked playing with him because my name's Alex as well. So, I was like, that's cool. Uh, we, we don't <laughs> talk about him anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, out of my league. But all right, (laughs) again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, You know, any any time you write a piece, I'm going to send you a message to bother you. But anytime you feel the need, we would love to have you back on. Sure, 
it was great great to speak to you i, I guess I have, I have one more thing that's been interesting me can i can i of course please shoot so the <laughs> so I've, I've been following the return of tatiana golovin i don't know if you know her um yeah give me the lowdown so so she's a, a player who she so, so a full disclosure when i was younger she was one of my favorite players and when i was a just a fan and she was a player who came up with um maria sharpova when they were younger and um and you know she's i think she's 31 now and when in like 2007 she she made the top 20 she was looked like she was about to break through and she had arthritis in her back badly injured her back the doctors told her you know you can't play tennis anymore and you know she had to stop for 12 years and you'd, you'd still see her around kind of the tour book as a broadcaster and things like that and you know i, I was in luxembourg um a couple of weeks ago to speak to coco golf and she was there you know making her comeback after 12 years and it was just you know what we talk a lot about the players the most unlucky players and obviously someone like del potro who's also coming back hopefully at the next year um but she's one of them and it's kind of tough to to imagine like training your whole life to be a tennis player and then having to kind of retire at 20 but now she's back so i'm um that's one thing that i'm very much like interested to see if like the impossible can happen and she can get back to the top of the game her Kleischers. I think I read somewhere that Lisa Raymond is coming yes. back as well. I read that today. I didn't know if it was like April Fool's. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> is that a Halloween thing? Someone's performing and like they came back as Lisa Raymond and she's like, oh, we haven't seen her in a while. Like, <laughs> I, like I don't know what the deal is here. So, uh, yeah, it's 2020's got some weird things going. On. It's going to be an yep. interesting year of tennis. There's no doubt the new decade will start off in a fun fashion. But again, uh, Tumani, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. And again, you're always welcome back. Yes, I look forward to speaking again. Uh, of course, sure. well, take care and enjoy the uh, yeah the year end stretch. <laughs> See you.